The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast. I'm Claire Armistead. I'm Richard Lee. And I'm Sean Kane. It's that time of year when our attentions are nudged sharply towards the world stage by the announcement of the Man Booker International Prize shortlist. This year, the chat has all been about how five of the six authors and all six of the translators are women. Is this a happy coincidence or a healthy sign that publishers are finally encouraging women's voices to flourish? Author of the 100 Best Novels in Translation, Boyd Tonkin, joins us to discuss it. But first, after last week's discussion of regional differences, this week we welcome another of Ireland's rising stars, Nicole Flattery. Flattery has been steadily building a reputation as a deft observer of modern life with a series of short stories, winning the White Review Short Story Prize in 2017 with Track, a story of a young Irishwoman adrift in New York City. Last year she landed that holy grail of literary fiction, a six-figure two-book deal, woo-woo, the first instalment of which, show them a good time, is just out. So Richard, why did you want to bring Nicole into the studio? Well, she's just a really strong voice. I mean, it's somebody I've been following since seeing her stories appear in the in Stinging Fly, where the, the Hump was her first, I think, in 2015. The Dublin Review, it, her sweet talk appeared there. There's two stories from the collection that appeared in, in 2016. So this is a short story collection. Could, mm. Are we expecting two short story collections, or might there be a short story collection and a novel? Uh, she signed a deal for uh, this collection of short stories and then a novel, which she's still in the middle of. You always sort of rather wonder whether the publishers aren't saying, oh, we'll get over with the short stories and then we'll have the novel. <laughs> I think it's a vote of confidence to start with a, a collection of short stories these days because, I mean, short stories are famously difficult to sell. So the idea that they can introduce her with this collection, I think, is, is very much kind of a thumbs up. You, you mentioned there the two Dublin periodicals and The Stinging Fly particularly, which Sally Rooney edited. Which uh, she edits now. She, she's, she's on sabbatical, I think, at the moment, but she is technically the editor. It's becoming the engine house of, of this new wave of Irish fiction, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so it's an extraordinary publication. They've got a really good nose for things. And uh, um, I think they're actually bringing out her collection in Ireland. Uh, they're publishing it as part of their book division as well. So what kind of thing is, is Nicole Flattery doing? But there's a similar kind of wit and freshness to somebody like Sally Rooney, really. I mean, most of the stories in this collection are about young women who are looking for some sort of role in life. They're often adrift or slightly looking for something to do or kind of slightly to the side of something that they might be in the middle of. There's a lot of dysfunctional relationships. There's trauma and there's abuse in the background. But there's always a dose of dry humour. I mean, she's got this terrific wry voice which undercuts these uh, rather difficult stories with, with a bit of with a dose of a laugh. And so when she joined me in the studio, she began by reading from the opening of the first story in the book, Show Them a Good Time. The schemes were for people with plenty of time or people not totally unfamiliar with being treated like shit. I was intimate with both situations. Management interviewed me. Bizarre questions through an inch of plexiglass. How long and hours have you been unemployed? Did you misspend your youth throwing stones at passing cars? This can be a tangential process, management explained, and I said sorry. Only peasants apologise, management stated and returned to obscure markings. The interview was an all-nighter, designed to break my spirit and ensure I pledged organisation and responsibility for the rest of my days. I emerged from it not completely sure of anything except my own name and my age, which I knew was somewhere in my late twenties. In the morning, I was taken to the bathroom to be measured for a uniform. The toilet stall had the dark, depthless feel of a place where a body may have lain undiscovered for days. The shirt gave me breasts. The regulation boots gave me legs. All those parts I'd worked so hard to forget were now reunited under surprising polyester circumstances. When I was dressed, management offered me a manic thumbs up. Management was round, almost perfectly so, and given to spontaneous bursts of laughter. 
She looked at me in my white and empty face and asked, isn't it great to be able to give yourself a giggle? I saw in that gesture her former life as a farmhand, the crazy ease which she sent animals off to be slaughtered. Management explained the procedure again. Our function was to be near the till, maintain the appearance of the garage and most importantly, believe. Management left the room as I screened the demonstration video. In it, three participants with the sexless good looks of catalogue models spoke of the joy of being back at work. Whenever they did something spontaneous or considered outside their remit, a large X popped up on screen. As I watched, I felt giddy and ashamed, as if I were witnessing a particular vicious type of pornography. Management suggested if I ever felt like I didn't believe, I should go for a short, furious walk, maybe up and down the motorway path, and stay away from my colleagues as my attitudes and sulky face could be hazardous. She said I seemed like a nice person, and if we had customers, they'd probably like me. I had a personality that was best suited to short interactions. Should I get a business card made? I asked. It's something to consider, management said, and she repeated her manic thumbs up. So when did you start putting these stories together? Did it take a a little while or did they all come of a piece? Um, I actually, the first story I published is in this book. So it's called Hump and it's the first story I ever published. And it was in a stinging fly issue. Um, I think it was 2015. It was a very good issue. A little known... You say so yourself. Yeah, it was, I was in it. A little known poet called Sally Rooney. Yeah. She had poems in there. Yeah, and then I just kind of was working from then on. I was just, I wrote in the, that story I just read there. I, I wrote that and that was published in The Stinging Fly. Then I had a couple in the Dublin Review and the White Review. And once we, uh, there was a number published, Declan Mead, who is the editor of The Stinging Fly, offered to help me work towards a collection. Um, so I had that specific goal. I was working towards finishing a collection. Because they were all very much of a piece, in, in yeah. a way. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. One, they did. Part of the same gesture. Yeah, I felt that. They, yeah, someone said that to me. They were like, it could be the same character at different points in her in her life. Yeah. And I, I wasn't thinking about that when I was writing it, but it didn't work that way. There's a, there's a lot of acting going on. There's, yeah. a, there's a whole play, even. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is a lot of acting. <laughs> are, these, are these women having trouble finding a meaningful role? Yes, I think that's very true. I think, yeah, and that reflected my own life. I, I wrote them in my 20s, and I think it's a, like certainly a confused period, and uh, these stories reflect that confusion, you know. I studied theatre myself, so I guess I'm, I gravitate towards... It's a bit of that in the background. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah I gravitate towards um, uh, writing about it and, and thinking about it, and it's how I learned to write. I, I started writing plays, so it's still there in some kind of way, you know. And so, and so these, these women are kind of trying on different parts, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, there's a, definitely that runs like throughout the whole thing. I think even like clothes are referred to as like costumes in one way, in one part and like show them a good time. They wear these, these like work costumes and things. And yeah, I guess it's also a sign that like, you know, I've had these jobs certainly when I was in my early 20s where like nothing felt real. Everything kind of felt like absurd. You'd be sitting there in the, these clothes that you just bought and you like I feel like this isn't real like you know I'm in, I'm in a play or I'm in a play about work this isn't work <laughs> I mean the women they're not very productive either are they? <laughs> not they very, are not. very busy they're kind of shuffling through these yeah. awful their jobs their internal or... lives are productive <laughs> there's a lot happening there but they're not really they're not very productive I guess yeah I guess I, I kind of I guess there's a certain kind of passivity yeah I mean, what's the kind of fascination there basically that things are happening to them that yes, they're going yeah, through yeah. these they're kind of passive I think that like and that as you say be, it's all happening on yeah, the inside yeah definitely that they're just like they don't have much control over their their own lives which I guess I also felt that a lot in my own life when I was certainly like struggling with things that's just a reflection of how yeah, it feels at yeah, that yeah, stage yeah. yeah but I feel like it's lots of young women would feel that way and then the kind of the way they kind of try and take control is within like you know their own kind of responses or just becoming like 
you know, like quite silent and like stepping back. Yeah. I mean, there's also a certain amount of kind of sexual dysfunction as well. There's yeah. a certain amount of porn as well. And yeah, there's kind yeah. of, there's a spell in the city earning ugly mm-hmm. money in, in, <laughs> in Show Them a Good Time. There's, there's Lucy sending out pictures to men online in mm-hmm. Abortion, A Love Story. Her finger in her mouth, her breasts on show and her legs wide open. Is that just, is that kind of pornographic material just part of life in the 21st century? I think so. Like, I, th- like, I, I feel like I'm not wrong in saying that that's so. <laughs> I might listen back and be like, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. <laughs> no, I think so. I feel like it's just so ingrained in our culture that it's not even like strange for me to it's just to approach it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, furniture would be definitely how it would relate and show them a good time. There's that <laughs> link between. Yeah. But um, yeah, I feel like I'm so accepting of it. You know, maybe it's because I've grown up with it. But yeah, it's just because of our kind of smartphone culture always yeah. being connected to something that is uh, yeah. only a step away from something. Yeah, and then it also, you know, was because of the unreality of the lives of these characters. It makes like like sex seem like an unreal thing and I feel like the characters definitely feel that way they're like one step away from their like own sexual lives you know they're like, almost like they're watching it you know yes like it's, yeah. almost, it's like it's like it's done almost to appear good yeah. for some something else somewhere yeah, else yeah definitely but there's a certain amount of you know there's a certain amount of damage there mm-hmm. abusive there's there's abusive relationships as well then yeah. there's there's even kind of there's a glint of of sexualized violence as well mm-hmm. i mean we were talking on an, on an earlier edition of the books podcast about sexual violence in recent fiction from writers mm-hmm. like Kristen rupinian and mm-hmm. leila slimani i mean are these shock tactics or is it just a new sort of courage to talk about things that have been going on all the while i don't think it's shock tactics in the sense that the, b- the book that i would consider is like sexually most sexually explicit is bad behavior by mary gateskill and that came out late 80s early 90s so i feel like it was always there but maybe women or female writers have more kind of confidence to, to talk about it now or write about it in a way i certainly like when i write about these things i don't feel like i'm, I'm being shocking i feel like i'm approaching a, something that's already in my life, you know, or it's something that's all like oh, I'm already surrounded by. So the only thing you can do is respond. But I mean, and that's certainly yeah. about that's question of the the Me Too movement yeah, and the way yeah, that so the, so the way that yeah. you, even if it's always been there, there's mm-hmm. a question in which it's now yeah. it's more possible to to talk about it. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And those power dynamics maybe are like a little bit like more open, you know, than they were before, where it felt like everything was kind of underneath the surface. Then this conversation started happening that like definitely opened up. Probably new, like, yeah, new things in fiction, like Caperson. Like suddenly everyone was talking about this. Everyone was talking about a short story, which is wild in itself. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you think there's a kind of responsibility mm-hmm. now that there's this openness, as the lid has been, as it were, taken off it? There's a new possibility. Do you think there is a responsibility to deal with that kind of material? I think so. Like to ignore it would be, like, certainly a little wrong. Or, yeah, I definitely think that we're right to write about young women's and women's like sexual lives in a way that's confident and assertive and it's a good it's a good thing that's happening yeah, it's, <laughs> just, it's just a kind of unavoidable yeah. thing yeah, in yeah. the moment where we're at yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i wondering about the voice as well i mean mm-hmm. as as you were saying earlier they, they all kind of feel of a piece mm-hmm. in some sense where did this this flat ironic voice come from <laughs> i think it's my own voice <laughs> a little bit a little bit um yeah they do they all kind of quite do have similar voices and i feel that like that's like you know, the gap between what they're presenting, particularly in like something like track with a girl that's staying in the comedian, the person she's presenting to him and like what her actual internal voice is telling her is like huge. And like that's like a very interesting 
space for me, you know, to kind of explore. You know, she's sitting there with him and all his friends and, you know, it's quite obviously she hates all of them. <laughs> but she can't, like, find a way to express that in her, in, her, in her own life. And she has, like, a certain probably value system and morals, but they, they're getting lost and muddled. And I think that's very, you know, true. Like, when you're trying to make your way in the world, you, you suddenly are put in these situations where you don't know who you are, you're in a new place, a new city, and you feel this complete detachment. And uh, yeah, I think I, I like exploring that. And she responds to it by flattening things out, yeah, by just, not saying it. Yeah, and um, also with humour. I mean, do you think humour is an important part of it? Yeah, I think so. I think humour gives you a kind of strength without really like being too like girl bossy. <laughs> like, I don't want to be like, it's a way of, um, yeah, a certain kind of like a little bit of ironic detachment it can be a, a way of finding kind of strength and power you know and also if you have if you have these women who have yeah. these difficult lives or these lives where they're not quite sure where they fit in is it a way of bringing the reader along with that as well yes definitely yeah i was, I was uh, talking about this recently i feel that i think i read an interview with uh, phoebe waller bridge and I, I enjoy that show and uh, <laughs> she was talking about how like if you make a joke early I think Kevin Barry says something like this you already have the reader or the viewer and then you can go somewhere else and I think if you can make them laugh then you've got them out of place not that it's a device because like I, I like humour and I, I like funny books and I think they should exist just because they are funny but I think you can then go to a darker place if you've You've, you've caught them off guard a little. You've bit. done that already. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, is that a kind of that is fleabag? Is that yeah, is that essentially? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that a kind of is that the space in which you're working with? I, you? I feel I feel like yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't think I'm as good, <laughs> but I know I know what she's trying to do, and I think she does it like incredibly well. You know that that kind of darkness that like just say in Hump where you know there's been a death. But you, she kind of moves away from the grief, but yet the grief is like very, very like present. And hands out sandwiches. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to ask a little bit about the endings, mm-hmm. the balance, particularly in a short story yeah. that's so crucial between mm-hmm. a sense of arrival and the yeah. ability to open out into some sort of transcendence. So yeah. the ending something that, that come naturally out of what's come before. Or is it something you need to work at? It's interesting. I think that I, I redraft a lot. So I do a lot of drafts and then kind of when I'm, I'm looking over things and like looking at things in a new kind of way. I, I might find the ending already in the story. For I felt that like in track that the ending was there, you know, that she kind of becomes this. I don't want to give the ending away, um, but I no felt spoilers. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> the ending when you read the book, you <laughs> you'll understand. No, um, and then the show them a good time as well. I felt the ending was like already already in the material. The abortion love story took a little longer because I was really putting off writing the play. And then... And you realised the whole play had to be in it? Yeah, because someone told me. They were like, just, <laughs> just do it. I know you really don't want to, but I, you have to. Because that is the natural conclusion. I think with the story, short story, a natural conclusion comes when you've taken it as far as it can go. And like that's, like, that's the end, you know? That's the moment. Yeah. yeah. You can tinker with them for so long. Like you can be like arranging sentences. And, and I, like I've had times when I've really been working on a story for like a year. And you kind of have to at some point be like... I'm going to send this out or I'm going like, to ask someone to read it or else you're very precious. <laughs> <laughs> is, there, is there a certain kind of amount of that same job goes on when you're putting a collection together to yeah. get the stories to, to work one off another? Yeah, actually, yeah, it's uh, interesting putting the, the collection together. I hadn't, 
I hadn't thought about how you put a collection together. Like I read a lot of story collections, but I don't always read them in order. And I would like maybe dot in and out. I did, yeah, yeah. I picked them up and I put them down, and then like I read the longest first or the shortest first or whatever. And I never really thought about the actual arrangement of the stories. But now I've done it. I will dutifully read a collection in order all the time, <laughs> out of respect, because it actually took me a while to do this. To respect um, all that work. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because um, one story is quite a bit longer, so we have to arrange the others around it, and so. Is, is there, I mean, is there something going on in, in Ireland right now? Do you feel part of a kind of a wave, a movement? Yeah, yeah definitely. A movement. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, because incredibly amazing time for Irish writing. But I feel like I've been saying that for like, or I've been hearing that for like five or ten years. It's like, how long do we have? <laughs> um, but the next yeah. wave is coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, why is that? Where's that come from? I don't. Um, it's kind of hard to pinpoint precisely what it is. I feel that like we have like a very good uh, literary magazine community. So like there's the Stinging Fly and the the Dublin Review and Gortz and Winter Papers, and that is very encouraging. Like I feel like when I was in my twenties and things that like, and I get a story published, you know, that can keep really give you the confidence to keep going and then you meet other writers and th- that support you find readers. So I feel like that's like a good reason. And then maybe like weather reasons it rains a lot um, we can't go outside um, yeah a couple of reasons like that but. and it's, it's one thing whereby the, the writers that you meet the writers that you that you read the writers you, you get to know them and, mm-hmm. and, and start in some sense yeah. on the same project yeah 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 and let's kind of have a conversation it's nice to, it's, it's good to have people you can ask read your work if you feel stuck or like even just to chat to you about books and things and that, that's you know useful you know you don't want to be shut off although if people have this like romantic image of writers it's like being In shut off yeah but I don't think that's good <laughs> <laughs> so, so what's coming next do you feel a little bit under pressure after signing a, a massive six-figure book deal I do <laughs> I do feel under pressure so no I'm, I'm, I'm working on a novel and it's a very different it's a very different thing from a story collection you kind of have to unlearn everything you've learned writing stories. Like writing a story, you're like focusing on the sentence, hinting at things, you know, like all the little techniques I just feel that are no longer useful for writing, for getting a first draft of a novel done. So it's kind of... You just oh, get it out. Yeah, you just have to, to write it, which is like such a strange concept to me. <laughs> Whereas I'm used to like changing paragraphs, you know, like changing a paragraph. I'm like, that's my day's work. Um, but this is a whole different thing. It is a new challenge. I'm looking forward to it. So is, is it uh, set in the same world? No, no. It's set in uh, the factory, the Andy Warhol's factory. And it's two two girls who are typists in the factory. And um, it's kind of about their work. I'm quite interested in, you know, these characters. And I think that's reflected in this book, like who are on the periphery, you know, like standing beside the famous person, not necessarily the famous person. So these two girls typed up a novel uh, Andy Warhol kind of recorded called A, a novel. It's just about their lives. And there's still the same, something of the same fascination with art. What do you mm-hmm. think art does for fiction? I feel like I'm not hugely influenced by other writers, but I'm like influenced a lot by like films and like theatre and things like that. So I feel like all the forms... And television. And TV, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although, no, <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> but uh, I guess, yeah, all these different kind of forms coming into play. And it's interesting, like reading a lot about Andy Warhol. I've been reading a lot about him. And like, I just kind of have to stop reading about him because you could just spend your whole life. Like, there's so much material. It's ridiculous, you know, but that's to... So you need to get on and write it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I contacted a biographer of his. Someone put me in touch with him and she messaged me back and was like, my advice to you is what Andy always said. Just make it up. And I was like, that's fantastic. <laughs> that's like what I needed permission. 
Nicole Flattery there talking to Richard. Andy Warhol, eh? it'd be very interesting to see how such a contemporary voice deals with a period setting like that. Yeah, it just goes to show you can make it up, as as Andy would assure us all. (laughs) After the break, we'll be travelling continents discussing the exciting new Man Booker International shortlist. The Voice Lab from The Guardian. Hey, do you ever want a quick catch-up on the news headlines first thing in the morning while you're making breakfast or getting dressed? Well, if you have a Google Assistant or Google Home, we can help with that. The Guardian Briefing is an experiment from The Voice Lab, which in under two minutes brings you up to speed with what you need to know about the day's top stories. We'll make sure you don't miss a thing. To listen at any time, just say, Hey Google, speak to The Guardian Briefing. We said we'd be talking the Man Booker International shortlist, but that's really just an excuse to get our teeth into some literature in translation. I've been thinking quite a lot about it over the last few weeks for a huge investigation into the creative relationships between writers and their translators. One of the oracles I consulted to put it all in context joins me and Sean now in the studio. He's Boyd Tonkin, and his book, The 100 Best Novels in Translation, is just out in paperback. But first of all, let's go through the Man Booker shortlist. Yes, so we have Celestial Bodies by Jokka Al-Hathi. She's from Oman and translated from Arabic by Marilyn Booth. The Years by Annie Ernaux, a French author and translated by Alison Strayer. The Pine Islands by Marion Poshman from Germany, translated by Jen Kalasia. Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead by Olga Tokarczuk from Poland and translated by Antonia Lloyd-Jones. The Shape of the Ruins by Juan Gabriel Vasquez from Colombia is translated from Spanish by Anne McLean. And The Remainder by Alia Trabuco Zaran. Uh, she's from Chile and Italy and it's translated from Spanish by Sophie Hughes. Well, that put you through your paces, your <laughs> translation paces. <laughs> My <laughs> excellent pronunciation. Excellent I'm pronunciation. really sorry if I've offended anyone listening. Boyd, you're always, you're always the advanced telegraph, really, aren't you, when it comes to novels in translation? How many of these are you familiar with? Uh, I'm familiar with four of them, and I'm doing my best to catch up with the, the other two. So the, so you have for a long time been a fan of Juan Gabriel Vasquez, haven't you? I have, yes. He's one of the remarkable generation of Colombian writers who are not so much the sons and daughters of the boom generation. They, they are, if you like, the grandchildren of that great core cohort of Latin American writers, Fuentes and Marquez and so forth. They were called boom generation. That, that's the sort of name that's given for them in, it, in it, Colombia, it, it in Latin America. Yeah, yes, it? yes. Uh, and as you might expect, wh- whenever there's a, a kind of global cultural phenomenon of the type that you had with Marquez and his peers, there is a reaction, not against them, them, but you might say beyond them. And so if you read a, a novel, say by Juan Gabriel Vasquez, expecting levitating opera houses and clouds of butterflies and <laughs> all the normal cliches of uh, so-called magical realism, you will be either delighted or disappointed because <laughs> it's, it's completely different. It's an investigation of a historical political crime, basically. It, it is. Two. Uh, and uh, I, have, I have to say it's a particularly relevant novel for people here to be reading now because it's about how political division, how political tribalism, the separation of a country into warring camps affects the long-term future of that place and to some extent poisons the entire society. 
Well, the next one I'm going to bring up is Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead, which is partly because Sean is reading it at this moment. Yeah. I've been hooting on about Olga for about two years. <laughs> yeah. You finally got round finally it. Finally And you're enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, really, really, very much. And it's not, it's not what I was expecting at all. And perhaps that's my own ideas about the kinds of books that get nominated for literary prizes like this one. But I wasn't really expecting a whodunit. You told me it was going to be a whodunit. And I was like, yeah, but it won't be. And then I really, and it's like, it's so much fun. But of course, then there's this, this much sort of wider context in this novel of Poland and its politics and feminism and vegetarianism. And it's quite dark at the same time as being quite fun. But I really like Janina, the main narrator. Um, we, were, we were discussing how old she was and I have a horrible sort of feeling she's probably about the same age as me. <laughs> well, she of, seems older. <laughs> I was sort of thinking, I've been imagining like Miss Marple, but with dreads like Olga. Because uh, <laughs> Olga's got this very cool head of dreads. And I'm just sort of thinking like a hippie Miss Marple. But but, yeah, she's such a cool narrator. I really like her. What did you think of it, Boyd? You, you've reviewed it. Uh, I, yes, uh, I absolutely loved it. And I should say that the great thing about the Man Book International is that it rewards the author and the translator equally. And in this case, uh, Olga has the most wonderful partner, if you like, in the shape of Antoni Lloyd-Jones, who's a brilliant translator from Polish, who really finds the right voice for this uh, incredible maverick heroine. And of course, the, the heroine, Janina, she is steeped in English romantic literature. The actual title is a line from Blake. So if you're translating from the Polish, you also have a, to find a way of incorporating the fact that the original contains references to, to English as well. So all of these layers of complexity make the task of a translator a bit like playing four-dimensional chess blindfold. Um, Antonia was saying, telling me about how um, I mean, it, it does involve translating a Blake poem. Him. Oh yeah, yes. I've from English into English yes. via Polish, and yes. she, and what very sweetly you mentioned that you mentioned Antonia particularly Jennifer Croft, her other trans Olga's other translator, won with her last year for flights, won this prize, and Antonia was saying I was asking Antonia if she wasn't a little bit jealous when they when they went up to win since Antonia is the longer standing translator. And she said, no, 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 they're, they're sort of like Team Tukarczyk and they're very good friends. And she said, and in fact, it was Jennifer who persuaded her that it was possible to do her own version of a Blake poem, which to her as an English writer yeah. in that in that tradition thought it was preposterously presumptuous <laughs> to do yeah. a translation of Blake from English into English. <laughs> so let's move on to another of the veterans because you could I mean Tokarczyk although she's not been known very long in this country is actually she's a very distinguished yes. best-selling novelist with yeah. a huge backlist waiting to be translated and another of those is Annie Erno with The Years. Tell us a little bit about that I haven't read it I have to say. Yeah, well, I, I'm very glad to see that on the list, partly because Ali Eno is the most extraordinary writer and I think very much underappreciated outside France, someone who's been telling stories of everyday life in France in a highly original, distinctive style for really quite a long time now and has never really flourished in the English language translation scene, which, is, alas, is all too common. And this novel, with its title that, that obviously for an English language reader inevitably brings to mind uh, Virginia Woolf, mm -hmm. has 
aroused a bit of debate about the question of where the borders of fiction and non-fiction lie because it is a kind of collective voicing of the experience of a generation uh, growing up uh, from the 50s and, and 60s th- right through to the present day. It has a kind of almost a, like, like a sort of uh, collective narrator, really. So it becomes a way of uh, transmuting the lives of many, many people into a single story. So it's very bold, very original on various fronts, one of which is the way that it it turns the material of recent history into a single narrative. So the question arises, is this uh, something that counts as a novel? Is it more like a kind of creative documentary? And for me, I think ever since uh, the days of Don Quixote, the novel has uh, flourished by pressing against the boundaries of what it's supposed to be. And I don't see any sign of that slackening. And I think Annie Erno is simply in a very long and honourable tradition of people who are really extending those frontiers of what we think of as fiction. So, Sean, you thought that this might have a good chance purely on the basis that it is innovative, formally challenging and interesting. Yeah, well, I wrote the news story last week about the shortlist and so went and met with the judges to get an idea of what their decision-making process was like and they were very keen to say how excited they were that this book was setting a precedent and I think particularly with novels in translation with European fiction we're seeing quite a lot of these novels that are pushing into what is called autofiction that it is a sort of strange blend of memoir and and novel and I think they're quite taken with the idea that this is going to set a exciting new precedent for the prize going forward so I do wonder whether it might actually maybe they've given away <laughs> they're thinking a bit <laughs> when they were talking to yeah, me well, about they, it they, they, can always, they can always sort of produce red herrings can't they oh they yeah love totally. a red herring. we It'd love a like, red surprise herring. Olga's won again <laughs> <laughs> um, so those are the three best known people and then there are a couple of very unknown partly because for example when did we last ever indeed have a novel from Oman yes. in English well yeah Celestial Bodies I was reading it this morning actually I've, I'm sort of about half, halfway through it and it is really interesting because it has this tumbling flow to it that does actually remind you of a sort of Arabic myth like A Thousand and One Nights where it, there's no punctuation and in, in terms of like uh, in, di- in the dialogue there's no punctuation so you're just sort of falling in and out of voices and you've got a huge cast of characters because it's all sort of built around this one family in Oman but over three generations and it's really interesting because I think it's most focused on the middle generation of this family and you see the adults in the family looking back to their parents who were sort of very firmly you know arranged marriages talk about having slaves in the family that sort of thing and then their children who are sort of rich and play video games and go on holidays to Dubai and it's really really interesting portrait of a country that is very old but has modernized very quickly and so I have to say that perhaps I I I'm finding some of it a bit flowery some of the writing but it is a really interesting family and it's certainly very relatable to anyone that's got a big family you will um, probably enjoy some of the drama <laughs> between <laughs> different family members so interestingly Bohan Somnes who who is a Kurdish Turkish novelist won the EBRD prize which is a new prize by the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development last year 
with a story which is also based on the Thousand and One Nights. And I, I just think it's really interesting to look at the way in which these writers coming in from other cultures bring with them a different model of what the the foundations of the novel are. We mm. might look back to Don Quixote, as you said, Boyd, but they look back to A Thousand and One Nights in these uh, Yes, uh, and bear in mind, of course, that the, the, the idea that there is some rigid distinction between what is European and what is non-European in fiction is itself a bit of a narrow myth. Look at Don Quixote itself, where uh, there's this running joke that Cervantes has that Don Quixote is a translation from the Arabic. So you could say that at the very foundation, at the fountainhead of what we think of as the European tradition in the novel, there is this acknowledgement that it comes from further away. That is so interesting, isn't it? <laughs> OK, we, now we need to move on to The Pine Islands, which is a German novel that, again, I'm horrified and afraid to say I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I can say I know it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's it's a funny little book. It's really funny, but dark, and it's got a sort of absurd and detached tone to it. So, basically, we start with this academic who uh, wakes up and has had a dream that his wife has been cheating on him. <laughs> and then confronts her about this dream he's had and then they have a fight and within the first page he's gotten on a plane and he's gone to Japan. He's just upped and left and hasn't told her where he's going. Um, but it's, um, it's, it's kind of one of those novels that asks you, okay, just don't expect any of these characters to act the way that you would act in this situation and just sort of go with it. And it's actually a, a lot of fun. I wasn't expecting how fun it is. Well, you have to leave it on my desk when you finish with it. <laughs> and then the final one is the remainder from Chile and Italy. That's interesting. Tell us, how did that happen? <laughs> well, um, yeah, the remainder, it's a debut, actually. And rather excitingly, it's a... I don't, I don't really know because I haven't read the Juan Gabriel Vasquez, but there is this common thread, I think, about the shadow of the past and how it can hang over people and with this book it's basically three twenty somethings who have decided well, they're sort of trying to escape Chile's sort of military dictatorship the past of it and there's this journey that they decide to go on to go locate a corpse and it it sounds dark and it is dark but it's again there is an interesting uh, narrative thread through it and particularly if you read the very first the opening paragraph which is actually one sentence there is i thought a real flair to the how it's been translated in that it, it's quite dizzying it makes you want to read it all in one breath but it's it sort of it's a very effective way of laying out a, a sort of political situation that i'm not familiar with at all and this is as going back to your line of, about juan boyd is this is what latin american writers are doing all the time at the moment isn't it this terrible past of the last 50 uh, years uh, or so uh, absolutely if you look at uh, across the continent in colombia in chile in argentina to some extent in, in brazil in peru in so many places there is the sense of a, a nightmare that hasn't yet been fully digested and fiction is one of those places where the ghosts can be confronted and hopefully banished and therefore the responsibility of writers in societies like this is I think um, something that is taken very very seriously and it, I think it's been a really uh, we talk about the boom there's been another kind of boom recently which is the uh, the uh, you could call it the fictional archaeology of memory and in particular using fiction as a way at least of 
understanding the wounds of a society, if not of actually healing them. You could sort of call the fiction of Latin America at the moment, drive your plough over the bones of the dead, couldn't you? <laughs> Parche, Olga. Well done. <laughs> Perfectly. Yes. That's, yeah. um, now, I want to move to your book, Boyd, to move away from what's happening now. Yeah. Both Annie Erno, I think, was first published in, in the late mid-1990s, yes. so she could yeah. have had come in, had a place at the end of your book. Vasquez, yeah. he actually did start writing in 1997, but wasn't translated until 2004, yeah. I think. Yes, just too Just too, too um, late. I'm to, sure to, he would have been in there. That, that my my, my <laughs> cut-off point was actually the year 2000. Yeah, why um, did you make that cut-off? Uh, it, partly it was because I wanted to avoid having to pass judgment on very, very contemporary literature, which is always difficult, I think. And uh, you could say it's a bit arbitrary. Of course it is. Uh, And if, for instance, uh, I had extended the time frame just a couple of years further, uh, I can think of some great novels I might have included, but uh, you have to stop somewhere. Well, it also uh, gives so, you a chance for a second volume, doesn't it? Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it certainly does. And I, in fact, I, I've been thinking precisely about this. So what are the most memorable, the most enduring novels to have been published, for instance, in translation between the millennium and now? After all, we are now shockingly a fifth into the next century <laughs> yeah That's you now you were a judge on the first of the man book international prizes that were, were refashioned as That's a prize right, for novel 2016 and you, and you yes, gave it to, to han, han kang, kang the, the vegetarian, vegetarian. Yes. now would you say that that would make your next book as it, one of it, the uh, I, I think it would be an incredibly strong contender because that was one of the experiences uh, judging a prize where you come across the uh, almost like a a comet that streaks in from <laughs> Uh, a distant galaxy. Of course, it, it's it's our fault that Korean literature was so distant for us, and so little came to us uh, before Deborah Smith delivered uh, this uh, wonderful translation of uh, Han Kang, and it has opened up a, a completely new terrain. And there is masses of what sounds completely fascinating Korean literature just waiting to be translated and discovered. Obviously, it's a bit silly. It's been discovered by Koreans uh, um, <laughs> long ago. But, yeah, but, it, uh, but it, for a us, lot of it does exist yeah, in terribly bad academic well, translations. This, that's this, one of my bugbears. Is yeah. I've tried to read it a few years back, yeah. and, and so Deborah's really did deliver us, yeah. open the, the magic cupboard. Yeah. That was an exemplary tale because she translated it beautifully. And then, of course, the academic translators pile in and accuse her of uh, committing various errors. And there is a really deep question here about what is an error in a translation. Uh, If a literary version which is faithful to the underlying structure, spirit and organisation of a book commits what are deemed to be faults according to a much narrower set of criteria, how much does that matter? Obviously, the ideal is something that succeeds on every possible front, uh, but that ideal is not always going to be achieved. And from my point of view, it is the literary translation that creates a parallel work of art, uh, which is the faithful version. Thanks, Boyd. The 100 Best Novels in Translation is out soon in paperback from Galileo Publishers. Nicole Flattery's Show Them a Good Time is published by Bloomsbury. Next week, we'll be celebrating Shakespeare's birthday with the Oxford professor Emma Smith. Plus, we'll be talking to the novelist Tash Orr about his new portrait of the rapid change sweeping across Southeast Asia. 
And as always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. And do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead, me, Sean Kane, me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Susanna Trezillian, goodbye and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.